Hi, and welcome to the Circle of Film Podcast. I'm Ryan, and join me as we step into my top 10 November films in today's episode. What's this? What's this? It's super califragilistic, expialidocious. What is this? Looking at uh, what I saw in November and, and what made the top 10 list, uh, this shouldn't be very, shouldn't be too long of an episode uh, to record because. Some of them are movies that I've already talked about in their own episodes. Others are short films. I think this is the most short films I've had on a top 10, a monthly top 10 yet. Uh, so, yeah, I, I wouldn't... I'd be surprised if this went super long. Uh, in the month of November, I watched a total of 82 films, which is a pretty steep drop uh, for the for this year. Um Compared to October, where I saw 115, and uh, if we even go back to September, it, the number was 144. So, yeah, I mean, the writing is really eating into my time to watch movies, but I have found a way and persevered uh, to the tune of uh, 5,576 minutes. 92.9 hours, almost four days uh, of, of November were spent watching movies, and uh, yeah, a lot of rewatches at the top of this list, um, Wreck-It Ralph in preparation for Ralph Breaks the Internet, uh, I did the retro review on The Dark Knight, that's here, um, I rewatched uh, The Nightmare Before Christmas, uh, which is another one of my favorites, uh, a couple of Harry Potter movies toward the top, uh, in preparation for Fantastic Beasts, so a lot of a lot of repeats towards the top, but uh, as you know, those do not make the top ten anyway. So let's um let's get into this. Let's do this. Uh, the first film, number ten, is a movie I saw November second, uh, twenty eighteen. It's twelve minutes long. It's from nineteen fifty three. My summary is a woman walks through the gardens. I gave this film an, a 70. It does not have a Rotten Tomatoes score. And it's called, I, I may or may not be pronouncing this correctly, um, Eau d'Artifice. Eau d'Artifice. Uh, and it is directed by Kenneth Anger, uh, who is, I watched a bunch of his films, I, I, like eight or nine of his films uh, within this, like on, on the same day. And he is an experimental filmmaker, predominantly, I believe all short films is, is what he's made. And he, he has, uh, he, I've never heard of him before watching. I, I found his, this collection of his short films, decided to dive into them. Some are not that great, uh, others are okay. And some, uh, including Oud Artifice, are quite good. Uh, they're they're uh, he he's labeled as experimental, but there it's it's not as it, I wouldn't call it um, abstract in the same way that a lot of uh, short filmmakers are. You know, this is 
you know, to read the, the fuller synopsis off of Letterboxd, a woman dressed elegantly walks purposely through the water gardens at the Villa d'Este in Tivoli as the music of Vivaldi's winter movement of the Four Seasons plays. Uh, heavy red filters give a blue cast to the light, water plays across stone, and fountains send it into the air. No words are spoken. Baroque statuary and the sensuous flow of water are backlit. And it is pretty much exactly what it's presented as. It is a woman. She walks through the gardens. There's light, there's music, there's water fixtures and, and uh, you know, just, just kind of atmosphere. You know, it, it's a film that lives in its its atmosphere. You know, and, and within the energy that it channels through these um oh what's the term um elements of water of earth of 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 air of of rock of you know all these things that that kind of coalesce to perform to perform for the background music for vivaldi's winter movement of the four seasons it it it's short you know and it's not gonna offend and it has this sort of ethereal element to it that I found very charming. I found very, very soothing. Uh, you know, it, it really did work on me, pretty much, you know, all of it. Uh, it, it kind of, it does pull you in to its ambiance and it, it, it makes you... I don't know, it, it, for 12 minutes for a film without narrative, without, you know, character, to be able to to draw you in and give you an experience as if you're in their, the film with them, as if you're the one walking through the gardens, you know, passing the fountains, and, and it just, it all kind of, I don't know, it just, it just works for me. Uh, I would recommend a lot of Kenneth Anger's films. Uh, this is not the only film of his that will be on this month's top 10. Uh, there will be one other one. But there are a bunch of them that I really enjoyed. And, and he's got a very expansive filmography. Uh, even on Letterboxd, he's got 29 credits. I've only seen nine. So, you know, he he's uh, 91 currently. Still alive. I don't know when the last movie he made was, but I can look it up. And it was five years ago. So even into his mid-80s, he, he was continuing to, making, continuing to make films. Most of the ones I saw, or all the ones I saw, are very early. You know, Uda Artifice from 1953. I got as far as uh, the early 70s in his filmography. So there's still quite a few films left for me to see. And I, I, I enjoy him quite a lot. So... Number 10, uh, Oud Artifice by Kenneth Anger. Number 9 is an animated film uh, that I saw on November 19th this year. Uh, it's six minutes long. It's from 2018. My summary, ostriches spend their lives with their heads buried. Gave it a 71. It has no score on Rotten Tomatoes. It is... Uh, 
not on Letterboxd, which is frustrating. Uh, but there's not much I can do about that. It is directed by Mohamed Hoho, and it is produced by, I'm probably going to pronounce this wrong, Gobelins, which is an animation studio. It's on YouTube. You can watch it on YouTube. Uh, again, six minutes, easy to find. And, you know, it's a satire. It's, uh, you know, it, it represents politics from a point of view where, or like, the ostrich politics, yeah, it, it represents politics as if politicians and people, as if everyone had their heads in the ground. And within the short film, one ostrich, a scientist, uh, discovers that they don't need to do that. It's not a, you know, you don't have to put your head in the ground. You don't have to ignore and block everything out. You don't have to distract yourself from the world around you. And this causes chaos. This causes, you know, revolution and danger and, and truth. And eventually they stamp it out. It's, it's, I don't know, you know, it's, it's a very straightforward, it's very, you know, wears its, its message on its sleeve, but it's a six minute short film, so it kind of has to, it can't really be that subtle, but it's well, it's beautifully animated, it, it looks great, and it's a poignant message, and it's told through a very compelling uh, medium, which is, or not medium, but but uh, cipher, which is ostriches. You know, they have just like all these very weird uh, situations where they can, you know, like there's a statue of an ostrich with its head in the ground. Uh, you know, their marketing has the ostrich's head in a cereal bowl. Another ad has its head, you know, is advertising for headphones. So, man, if, if putting your head in the ground isn't blocking enough out, here's some more. Here's an additional way to keep everything out of your head. Uh, the short film resolves uh, and, and ends with some pretty striking imagery, uh, very similar to uh, Black Klansmen which I found very effective uh, in both instances. And I think Ostrich Politic is a, is a good one. So my number nine for November is The Ostrich Politic. Uh, moving on to the first feature-length film on this month's list. Uh, I saw this November 29th, 2018. I have it at 112 minutes, so just shy of two hours. It's from 1950. My brief summary, a successful heist goes off the rails with double-crossing and bad luck. I gave this a 71, same as the ostrich politic. Uh, it has a 97% on Rotten Tomatoes, which is why it's higher. Directed by John Huston, starring Sterling Hayden, Louis Cowhern, Gene Hagen, James Whitmore, Marilyn Monroe, Sam Jaff, Jaffe? Jaff? Uh, John McIntyre, and others. Uh, this is the Asphalt Jungle. So in the Asphalt Jungle, <clears throat> you have... Uh, let me make sure I 
have the character names and actors correctly aligned. Uh, Sam Sam Jaff, as as someone recently paroled from prison, who basically gathers up a group to perform a heist. Very straightforward at, at the onset. You know, just, guy just gets out of prison. He's like, you know what? I have reformed my ways to doing more crime. Sure. Ocean's Eleven. We've seen it. Uh, but what happens is John Houston takes this heist and just completely casts it aside from a narrative standpoint. What I mean by that is, after the heist sequence plays out, the the subsequent film that follows, which is, you know, about at least, I think at least half of the movie is after the heist, it's all about, can these guys keep their mouths shut? Can they, will, are they satisfied with what they've gotten or not gotten out of the heist itself? Can they play nice with each other? And the whole process becomes, through the whole process, it becomes obvious, no. (laughs) And each character, uh, you know, from Monroe to Hagen to, to Sterling Hayden, they all have their various avenues through which we, we, we see why they are antagonistic towards this person or what draws them to being complicit with this person and, and how their relationships evolve and struggle and change. And it, it really is boiled down to the characters by the end of the movie. And you want some of them to succeed and, and some of them, they all perform this heist together, but they're not all bad people, and, and the film and John Huston really pulls back the, the curtain on just kind of the human on human nature, in a sense, to say, okay, if six guys perform a heist, you know, well, they didn't all do it for the same reason, and some of them are out for just the money, some of them are out for just the, the, the thrill, the... the the rush, some of them regret doing it and are kind of forced into it. Some of them, you know, want to do it again, want, you know, want to build upon that feeling, etc., etc., etc. And watching these personalities and motivations coincide and, and clash more often than not is very fun and very exciting. And uh, I really, really had a lot of fun with the Asphalt Jungle it's it's really it, it's mm, I don't know it, it just kind of like you going through this this seedy underbelly uh, in the Midwest and you get to experience it through all these you know generally fairly old you know criminals who have had a life and lived and now want to find a, a, a satisfying ending to their story. And some of these guys, there's someone in the way of that happening, and others are, you know, putting, you know, are, are pushing people aside and trying to 
get there first in a in a sense. So I like the Asphalt Jungle. I think it's quite good. My number eight for November uh, from 1950. Number seven. We go back to Mr. Kenneth Anger. Uh, this is uh, this is a film I also saw on November 2nd. It's 16 minutes long. It's from 1971. Uh, my summary, A Man Fawns Over the Moon. I gave this a 72. It has no score in Rotten Tomatoes. And it is called Rabbit's Moon. Rabbit's Moon. So a more extensive um, synopsis uh, on Letterboxd reads as such. Uh, a Japanese fairy tale meets Commedia dell'arte. All in white, the knife Perrault lies in a wood. Doo-wop music plays as he rises, stares about, and reaches for the moon. Although music abounds and the children of the wood are there at play, Perrault is melancholy and alone. Holoquin arrives, brimming with confidence and energy. He conjures the lovely Columbina, Pierrot is dazzled, but can the course of love, of course of true love, run smooth? Uh, so, similar to Ode Artifice, Rabbit's Moon, uh, you know, lacks dialogue, uh, and basically you have a man, Pierrot, dressed all in white, uh, who yearns for true love as embodied by the moon and suddenly harlequin appears and creates uh this this m he manifests a woman that pierrot can fall in love with and more than than anything else what i love about kenneth anger's movies are you know the 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 mood and, and the ambiance, as I mentioned in Ode Artifice, Ode Artifice. And yet, at the same time, I'm always drawn in by the music. You know, he has such a way with tra transposing image against sound. And in, the, in Rabbit's Moon, I think it, it's the, of the films of his I've seen, it is the most perfect version of this. He, it, it's dazzling. It's you know it's a it's a a joyous encounter. It's it's poetic. You know the, there's whimsy and and this dreamlike ethereal state that he puts you in with not only the music but you know how he com how he orchestrates the scenes in relation to the music. You know whether they're working together to to sort of um, sort of perform alongside each other or purposefully work against each other which creates its own uh, magical effect uh, and and speaking of you know some of the performer and like talking about some of the performers uh, I don't recognize any of these names Pierrot played by Andre Subaron uh, Harlequin played by Claude Revenant Revenant, uh, Columbina, Columbine, Columbine, uh, played by Nadine Valence. They are performing 
in what is essentially a silent film with music in the background and their their faces uh, emote as dramatically as they used to do in silent films when you couldn't hear the inflection of someone's voice you couldn't uh, you know you couldn't hear them snort or, or growl you just had to you know you couldn't hear them scream they had to display all of that emotion on their face so that you could see it so that you could feel it and that is how the three main performers are you know present emotion in rabbit's moon it is very over the top it is very evocative it is very emotive and all to the to the benefit of the, of the final product I think that I, there, there's there's a sense of within this film, you know, using kind of Pierrot as the audience surrogate, you know, you you yearn for something, as in this case, the moon, and at some point, if if the thing you yearn for never comes never returns that affection or if it does uh, something prevents you from com connecting with it with that thing that whatever it is you're yearning for that person perhaps something eventually comes along that can pull away your attention as harlequin does uh, in the film you know and perot distracted by the image of Columbine is is completely taken taken advantage of in a sense, and I I think I don't know I, I just I really like this I think it, it, what it comes down to is it's a short very you know impactful film that has a lot to say and you know i think more to say the f more you dig beneath the surface i th i think and uh great direction great sound great music and really good performances make it my favorite of kenneth anger's short films that i've seen so far so that's number seven in november rabbit's moon Moving on to the next film, we have, um, I watched this November 1st, first day of the month. Uh, it's 121 minutes, just over the two-hour mark from 1949. My summary, four daughters go through their lives with the hopes of success and greatness. Directed by Mervyn Leroy, starring June Allison, Peter Lawford, Margaret O'Brien, Elizabeth Taylor, Janet Leigh, Rosano Brazzi, Mary Astor, Lucille Watson, C. Aubrey Smith, and others, is the 1949 version of Little Women. Uh, a story and, and that's been made time and time again. We, have, we had a new one in 2018. We have another new version of this slated for 2019. And it, it just... I don't know, I think I've seen, I haven't seen this year's version, but 
you know, if it's done carefully, if it's done with respect, the story is very compelling. These characters are very exciting to watch and experience and go through life with. They, you know, there's four sisters and they all are distinct. They all have their own... uh, mannerisms and characteristics and personalities and they at times work beautifully together other times you know great against each other with you know ug- you know ugly that doesn't make any sense they they great against, just great against each other and the sentence there and you know when you have Elizabeth Taylor and Janet Leigh kind of playing backup to uh June Allison's Joe. It, it's it's really. I don't know. It it creates something really special. You know these these big named actors these who who appeared in this smaller these smaller roles and yet you know they didn't overwhelm the film but they they really brought a lot of. Um, and, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? A lot of um, characters seem so bl- bland, but character to to uh, this story that t- is told again and again and again, and somehow you know they make it all these times, and it still manages to feel fresh. The uh, one thing I want from the next version of this I see, which I probably won't get because I'll be watching an even older version than this one, is for this not to take place during, like, the Civil War. And I get that that's part of the story, but I'd like to see this take place in, like, modern setting. Um, more Like, current, present setting. Uh, but this this is a good, really good version of this story. And it's not as good as uh, the 1990s version, um, which is the only other version I've seen right now uh, from 1994, uh, which I think is great. But this one is very good. And June Allison felt like she was doing uh, a Katherine Hepburn impression most of the film, which may or may not be just how she is. Uh, But I really, really was reminded of Katherine Hepburn uh, sometimes in a mimicry way, but in other times it was just, you know, it worked, I guess. I don't know. Uh, Little Women, my number six uh, from November. Number five. Number five. I saw this November 15th, 2018. It's 112 minutes long. It's a 2018 film. My summary, a preacher's son comes out as gay. Uh, I gave this a 73. It has an 85% on Rotten Tomatoes. So two Rotten Tomato points ahead of Little Women. Directed by Joel Edgerton. Starring Lucas Hedges, Nicole Kidman, Russell Crowe, Joel Edgerton, Xavier Dolan, Troy Sivan, Sherry Jones, Flea, among others. Is Boy Erased. Uh, I believe still in theaters, some places, not everywhere now, uh, is pretty, pretty, we, 
it's a good movie. Obviously, I, you know, I, I gave it a high enough score. It is a very good movie. And I think there are a lot of great aspects and elements within it. Nicole Kidman and Lucas Hedges are great in the film. Uh, even Flea from from Red Hot Chili Peppers is good in this movie. Uh, Joel Edgerton and Russell Crowe are both strong perform give pr- strong performances. My thing is that, and and this this will come up later in this this episode even. I saw a movie before Boy Erased that featured gay conversion therapy, and I think it's better. Which isn't to say that Boy Erased is bad, obviously, it's very good, and it features great performances and aspects and direction. Uh, Joel Edgerton really does capture some of the truth. You really dig into the the reality of some of these gay conversion therapy programs and what, how they work slash don't work. And what I what I found interesting about this film is how devoted Lucas Hedges as Jared is to his parents. And that seems may seem like an odd thing to say, you know, who isn't devoted to their parents. But given the circumstances, you know, he comes out as gay to them, and he well, uh, kind of forced to come out as gay to them, and then is kind of strong armed into going to this gay conversion therapy program, which he immediately, you know, does not, he, he gives it, like, an effort, but he, he's not into it. And so, throughout the film, though, Jared returns over and over again to his dad and to his mom, constantly, you know, trying to connect with them, trying to stay in touch with them, trying to help them be a part of his life when they want, especially his dad, Russell Crowe, really doesn't want anything to do with him once the truth comes out. And I like that aspect. I think that's an aspect that this film has that the other film that I will talk about later doesn't. And not a slight against the other movie, but you know, it's a strength of Boy Erased to show that relationship and how it can continue to... Uh, the bonds of it can continue to exist even after something as wrong as what happens to Jared ha- you know takes place so i re- i really like boy erased uh it's not my favorite movie of the year but it is certainly a good movie that i had a lot of fun with and uh, I think it does. You know, I think it deserves to be seen and, and discovered for for how true it is. Uh, so that's number five from 2018, Boy Erased. Number four, the the last of the short films. So four short films. Number four overall. This movie I saw November 6th, 2018. 
It's 29 minutes long, about half an hour. It's from 1979. Uh, my summary, a little gray wolf depicted through memories and symbolism. I gave this a 75. It has a negative one, or rather it has no score on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, it is directed by Yuri Norstein, and it is called Tale of Tales, or Skaska Skazak. Uh, it is Russian. Uh, Yuri Norstein, uh, this is the sec third film of his that I've seen. Uh, one of my favorite animated films, uh, animated short films even, uh, films in general, is Hedgehog in the Fog, which is another film of his from 1975. Uh, Tale of Tales is also very, very highly rated. I've been very excited and looking forward to seeing it. It's not as good uh, as Hedgehog in the Fog. But for me, that's a very high bar. So Tale of Tales, uh, you know, is not a narrative. It's not exactly a story. But it combines a lot of different elements of animation to create its final product. You see, you know, this this tiny wolf creature, character, who goes through a lot of different scenarios and finds himself in a lot of different situations. And each one is kind of animated a little bit differently. And sometimes it's interspersed with, you know, puppets or, or cutouts or cell animation um, and so on and so forth. And it, it really does symbolically represent Russia. And as someone who's not from Russia and who's never been to Russia, I, I can't really speak to the truth of, of the symbolism. I have enough of an understanding to draw some connections, but not a lot. And maybe if I had uh, a... a a better understanding uh, I could I could really make a stronger comparison you know compared to Hedgehog in the Fog you know this is far more laced with Russian symbolism uh, which which you know ultimately is what what ends up being why it's so much more disconnected from me but on as a film, as a as an image, as a collection of images, I think that they're all fascinating. I, I think it looks amazing. It feels ahead of its time, both in terms of quality of animation and in terms of symbolic display, uh, especially in animation. It push, pushes uh, boundaries that, you know, even stuff I've seen within the last couple of years are, are still gingerly approaching. And I think, at least in that sense, you know, it's an important film and, and shows how, especially, you know, Pixar is great and Disney is great. Um, they've created, you know, the most well-known animated films ever. Uh, and you've got DreamWorks and, and Sony Animation and Illumination who've dipped their toes in and have some, some hits of their own. But outside of the U.S., you've got Studio Ghibli and, and, and other anime films. But 
a lot of places and their animation styles and and techniques and so on they they don't you know they don't get enough recognition you know you have Ardman uh, you have Leica but you know Russian animation there's not a lot of it or maybe there is and I just don't know about it because it doesn't make its way over to the states and I think Norstein Yuri Norstein is amazing I, I love his animation I love his films I think he has a great sense for creating uh, for conjuring up an image and and putting it into a screen onto a screen and doing it without you know a real person involved or without a real building or house or street or or anything you know manifesting these these images from his his mind and from his hands i I think it's just absolutely incredible so tale of tales very good not i would also recommend hedgehog in the fog but i i love tale of tales I, i like it a lot too so that's my number four in november Tale of Tales from 1979. Number three, from animation in Russia from the 70s to animation from Disney today. Uh, number three is Ralph Breaks the Internet. Uh, to Not to bury the lead. Uh, so not to bury the lead. Uh, November 24th, I saw it. Uh, it's 100 minutes long. It's from 2018. Uh, my summary, a Wi-Fi router is plugged into a surge protector, sending our protagonists on a journey to the internet. I've kind of talked about this. I did a statistics episode just kind of to reiterate. I think it's a great message for, for, for kids about insecurity and about friendship and relationships and, and how those change and evolve and grow as time passes. And... You know, I, I really enjoy this movie. I love the performances. I love the voice acting. I love the song. The song is amazing. I love all the Disney princesses. And, and uh, you know, it does kind of feel stuffed at times. But it's stuffed of things I like. So, so I, I you know, I can't really complain. And, I don't know, you know, Gal Gadot... Godot, uh, Taraji P. Henson, Alan Tudyk, Jack McBrayer, Jane Lynch, uh, all these great voice actors, you know, adding so many, so much depth and, and character to all these, you know, peripheral people involved in the film. And I, you know, it just, it's just really, really enjoyable. And I had a great time watching it. So, um, Ralph Breaks the Internet. My number three. My number three. My number two. And this is the film I referenced earlier when talking about Boy Erased. Uh, I watched it November 8th, 2018. It's 87 minutes long, just under an hour and a half. 2018 film. My summary, a teenage girl is sent to a conversion therapy center to cure her of her same-sex attraction. Very straightforward. I gave this an 85. Oh, I gave Ralph a 78. I gave this an 85. It has an 86% on Rotten Tomatoes. Directed by Desiree Akavan, starring Chloe Grace Moretz, John Gallagher Jr., Sasha Lane, Forrest Goodluck, Jennifer L., 
uh, Marin Ireland, among others, uh, is the miseducation of Cameron Post. Desiree Akhavan, this is the second film of hers I've seen, the first being Appropriate Behavior, which I wasn't a big fan of. Uh, I thought it was mostly fine. Mostly fine. Uh, however, Miseducation of Cameron Post, much like Boy Erased, tries to show you the truth of these gay conversion therapy centers, camps, and so forth. How uh, terrible they are. Just terrible. And unlike Boy Erased, which deals a lot with the external um, consequences of attending one of these things, the, dealing with the external relationships between uh, Jared and his parents, Jared and his friends and, and relatives and all those things outside of him and, and the camp itself, Miseducation of Cameron Post spends the majority of its film inside the camp, concerned with the relationships inside the camp and doesn't really venture outside except for flashbacks. And while in the camp, she meets Forrest Goodluck and Sasha Lane, who kind of become her best friends. Uh, meanwhile, John Gallagher Jr. and Jennifer L. are brothers and our brother and sister who run the camp. Uh, Jennifer L. is the strict, severe doctor. John Gallagher Jr. is sort of the more down-to-earth, reverend, um, you know, good cop, bad cop sort of thing. And unlike in Boy Erased, where Jared was able to go home to see his mother uh, during the time he was at the cam uh, conversion therapy camp, that's not what Cameron gets. Uh, Cameron is stuck there. She lives there. They watch her day and night. They they prevent her from doing things that she wants to do. They prevent her from talking to people, from being alone with people. You know, they're, they're constantly uh, on her case uh, to try to stamp out the same-sex attraction that she has. And I think in both films, you get the sense that our protagonists sort of play along for a while and except but like don't believe in it uh in jared's case he's playing along because he wants to be he's doing it for his family and they're uh them you know he wants them to be proud of him he wants to stay connected to them and if he can't do that as a gay man maybe there's an alternative whereas for cameron uh, it's not exactly, it never feels like she wants to be quote-unquote straight. Uh, it, it feels like she goes through the motions uh, hoping to overcome uh, just the circumstance, however that happens. And what she realizes especially through some of her companions uh, at the camp, is how ridiculous and, and how, you know, she sort of uh, looks inward early on in the movie, but once she begins to, like, open up 
see, well, what are these other people doing here? How did they get here? Why are they still here? You know, what are they, how are they coping with being here? Are they actually actively trying to leave? Do they want to get better, quote unquote, better? Do they want to get, quote unquote, fixed? And she kind of just realizes that she doesn't have to do anything. And that there are, you know, much like, you know, a lot of kids who are kind of forced into a situation they don't want to be in, they find ways out of it. They find ways around it. They find ways to subvert it. And I think that the climactic moment in The Miseducation of Cameron Post hammers home the significance of this situation to Chloe Grace Moretz. And suddenly, this sort of, this is a joke, I don't care, you know, like, I'm here, but like, who really cares, and, and I'll just leave and like, go back to my normal life. All that kind of falls by the wayside in the last act of the movie, because it is a lot more serious than that. It does matter what happens at this place, whether you are affected by it or not, it is hugely, hugely impactful to your life there, your life afterward, the people around you, how you treat them. It's it's really striking to see some of the fallout of sort of the climax of this movie, and that really pushes it over the top for me. Because I, I think the movie is good up until that point, and I think it just kind of fires on all cylinders afterward. You get this overwhelming sense that, you know, obviously things were kind of bad and not great early on in the movie, but it was, eh, it was fine. Like, uh, you know, it, no one, it didn't feel, you know, these, these people weren't torturing and abusing and, and, and physically um, hurting the kids, and they don't. You know that that's not how what happens. But you just ultimately realize, as Chloe Grace Moretz does, yeah, yeah, this is fucked up. <laughs> and I love how the film kind of lulls you into this sense of, oh yeah, it's just like summer camp, and when you're done, you're done, and doesn't really change you but it, it does um, yeah so uh, the miseducation of Cameron Post is I think it's great I, I really really enjoyed it as a film uh, not so much the the content uh, I gave it an 85 it is my number two new movie that I saw in November which brings me to number one. This is another film that I've already talked about in its own episode, so it won't. I won't. I won't spend too long on it. But my number one from uh, from 2018. I saw it November 22nd. It's a little over two hours. Is Steve McQueen's Widows? I gave this an 89, and uh, it's 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 pretty great. And the more I think about it, the more I enjoy it. Uh, I may, it may or may not be a movie I have to rewatch, but 
I, I really, really liked it. And I love the cast. I love the performances. I love the themes and story and message and uh, connections and relationships that the characters form with each other. Uh, Elizabeth Debicki, Viola Davis, um, 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 uh, Daniel Kaluuya are all fantastic. Uh, even the characters like Jackie Weaver uh, and Robert Duvall, who have like one or two scenes, are just pitch perfect in this film, and, and you get a full sense of who everyone is, and all of it. Uh, yeah, it just it just all works together for me, and and I, I really did enjoy almost every aspect of the film. So, uh, widows, my number one, highly recommend. It's a shame it's not making more money and more people aren't going out to see it because it does reward you if you choose to do so. So, my number one new movie from November is. Widows. Widows. Uh, and that's it. So I'll run down the top ten one more time. Ode Artifice, The Ostrich Politic, The Asphalt Jungle, Rabbit's Moon, Little Women, Boy Erased, Tale of Tales, Ralph Breaks the Internet, The Miseducation of Cameron Post, and Widows. That's my new top ten from November. And, yeah, it was a good month. Uh... There's some bad stuff. Um, on the other side, uh, the worst film I saw from <laughs> during November for the first time was Forces of Nature, uh, followed by Nobody's Fool and Little Italy. All pretty awful. So avoid those. But really, go check out Widows if you can. Uh, go check out Miss Education of Cameron Post and Boy Erased because... They're very important right now because that's still gay conversion therapy camps are still happening. Uh, try out Kenneth Anger. I I think he again like I saw you know almost ten of his films, but I think that everyone would will find something within his his um uh, what's the term bag of tricks that they will respond to. Um, yeah, and, uh, and and The Ostrich Politic. It's on YouTube. It's free. No reason not to watch it. So uh, that is the end of today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. I really do appreciate it. And now, the outro, courtesy of Meg Berquist. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you would like to listen to more episodes, you can find this podcast at circleoffilm.com or on iTunes. Don't forget to rate and review. If you'd like to follow Ryan on Twitter, you can find him at Circle of Film or contact him through email at circleoffilm at gmail.com. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash circleoffilm for as little as eight cents an episode. Thank you again for listening and have a week. So long, farewell, I'll be the same goodnight. I know she'll never leave me even as she fades from Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. So long.